And now, coming at you from the Five Star Physique Studio in Knoxville, Tennessee, this is The Drop Set with your host, Darren Starr. All right, and I am back, kinda. Thank you all for not giving up on me and uh, assuming that I might actually be back someday. And here I am, October 14th, after uh, a long week off, after a uh, reasonable hiatus before then as well. So due to travel and then last week due to illness, I've been a little bit absent here. You can still probably hear it uh, in my voice. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's still not there. I feel fine for the most part. Uh, the voice is just not quite back up to snuff and where it should be. And uh, it's it's kind of funny. It's, so it's just, I don't know, I think I had some some weird flu-like symptoms last week. It was just this really dry cough. My voice was really, really weak. And uh, my whole body just ached. Like just standing up after I'd been sitting down for 15 or 20 minutes hurt. Really hurt. So last week I ended up taking four days off from the gym. Um, I did not leave the house from Tuesday up until Saturday, actually. So Saturday I returned to the gym and put in about, I'd say, a 70% effort on back day. And then yesterday I went in and probably about 75% or so on leg day. Still had some some aches and pains that I think were unrelated, really, that were kind of giving me a little bit of a little little bit of a fit. Um, and then today I'll go back, and I think we're pretty much back in the clear. So it was uh, definitely a rough week. I didn't miss any work last week. One one of the things about being a, you know, being a coach, being an independent contractor, you know, running your own business and being the only person who does it, if you aren't there to do it, ain't nobody else going to pick up the slack for you, uh, which makes it difficult to take a vacation. But you know, I plan ahead for that, and uh, basically. The week before and the week after the vacation are really, really hard, busy weeks. Uh, so if I'm going to take a trip, uh, like I will in December, I think most likely, and that, that's going to coincide with the holidays as well. And oftentimes that's a week where people just kind of want a week off anyway. So I think it'll coincide pretty well. So I'm not too worried about that. But otherwise, it's, it's challenging. And so last week, because there was no advanced preparation for this, like Monday, uh, you know, I got through my back workout on Monday. And it was starting to feel a little, just a little dicey, and uh, it ended up going way, way south from there. So really no advance notice. So I just kind of struggled through the week, and, you know, any any of my clients who are listening here can attest, um, I uh, I pretty much sounded like shit last week because I I still did voice notes for for most everybody. There were a few, like, early in the morning where I'm like, yeah, I – I hit record on this thing and I can't even hear myself talk. Um, but it was, it was a lot of stuff like this and like, I'm pushing kind of hard to get this much sound out. And it, and it was pathetic. It was like, man, he's really, really milking this for all it's worth, but it was, it was legit. So, uh, so we're back here this week and um, we got a lot of stuff to go over. There's a, a backlog of some stuff that I want to talk about as well, which is great. So we'll get into that. Um, we're going to start with the most important thing first, which is the lawn update. So, Today is the 14th, so not the 12th, but the 5th, two Saturdays ago at this point. I, uh, I overseeded the backyard. I know everybody's dying to hear this, so here you go. Uh, I overseeded the backyard, and I, I was always wondering, like, what does overseeding mean? And I, what it means, as far as I can tell, is you've got grass, but you are putting down more seed on top of that. So you are seeding over what is already there. It's not like you're tilling everything up and starting over. You are 
overseeding. You are seeding over top of what is already there, just basically to fill in patchy spots. So uh, the backyard, it, I would hesitate to even call things patchy spots. It's about 40% dirt <laughs> and 60% grass. It's not that bad, but it's, it's pretty bad. And there, there's weeds and stuff as well. I'm not even worried about that. I'm just trying to get everything filled in, and then I'll tackle the weeds after that. So I overseeded last week. Um, and then uh, just sprinkled very, very lightly with a shovel on top of that, some topsoil. My, my theory about this, and I didn't read anything about this, but it was just kind of logically thinking through it. Um, it keeps critters from coming and picking up the seed and eating it. Uh, and also, uh, if there was a big torrential rain um, or sometimes the sprinkler, I leave it on for too long and it starts to get standing water in there. Um, it's going to wash some of that seed away because the ground is not level. So uh, it's kind of just to keep everything in place and give it a chance to establish and take root. And so it, it's working. And so now we're, what, nine days in, and uh, I've got some some uh, some grass coming up. It's about inch, inch and a half long in spots, which is great. Um, but I, my dilemma now is, boy, there's still some patchy spots, some some big stretches where it's like, yeah, there's nothing coming up there. So last night I was walking around I'm like, well, do I go ahead and, and – overseed again in these spots i mean there's nothing wrong it's just a question of uh, i'm kind of lazy and i really don't want to but should i and uh no i didn't i, I gave up so i'm like eh, fuck it um uh, but now that i'm thinking about it i might go out and do it today um you know, i didn't give up long term but i was just like eh, i'm tired i'm trying to relax i don't want to do it right now on a sunday evening so i, I think i might do it today at some point uh it is going to be turning colder here so i, I don't want to wait too long I want to give everything a chance to establish some decent roots before we hit any kind of a frost. Um, and I don't know, it might be too late for that now just because we've gone from like 90 degrees to now having to wear jackets in the morning over the span of a week. It's ridiculous. Um, so anyway, there you go. The other critical thing is, uh, this is less of a joke, um, the logo um, update. So I got some really good voting on the website. Thank you. I got 48 votes. Eventually, I will do something like this, and we'll have like 15,000 votes over the course of a day. Uh, but until then, I'm going to be happy with 48. So um, it got narrowed down to really, you know, it was it was two um, options, but now there are, there are three front runners here. And so the the way Fiverr works, which is the the uh, website that I use to find the designer who put out these ideas, and I, I like them all actually. I mean, the, any one of these held at gunpoint, I'd, I'd take and be happy with. Um, but uh, the way it works is, you know, they, the, like the, the designer will submit their options to you. And these are all just concepts. And then from here, we establish, we, we pick one to kind of evolve and, and fine tune and tweak and get it the way that we want. Um, but from the day that uh, it was submitted to me, Fiverr starts a 72-hour countdown, basically. It's like, all right, you got to get back to the seller, <coughs> excuse me, the designer, Within 72 hours, we're going to automatically call this job finished. So I had things up for a vote, and it's like, well, I'm not ready yet. And so I, I was getting ready. I'm like, okay, today I'm going to go ahead and, and let the guy know. And that morning, I got a uh, an email from Fiverr that said, oh, we closed it. Thanks. Uh, if you need to contact the seller, do so here. So I'm like, dude, I, I ain't done with this. And he's like, yeah, cool, no problem. So uh, I asked to see a, a version of one of them on a on – a, because – Ultimately, what I'm really concerned about is how it's going to look on a, a black or a dark background, um, simply because when it comes to like having you know shirts, tank tops printed, whatever, you know, it's got to look good on black too. So I'm going to see a version of it on black. So I'm still waiting for that. He uh, he seemed to think that he sent me the revision, but there was nothing there. So I, and then I'm like, I didn't get anything, and that was two days ago. But it was over the weekend, so 
um, I'm, I'm hopeful that it will still show up. I'm, I'm crossing my fingers at least. So, um, anyway, uh, it is, it is between numbers. Uh, well, realistically one, four and five on the website, I think really four and five are the two that I'm, I'm focusing on because number one was down third in the voting when I submitted, uh, my request to the designer, but now it's bumped up to second. Uh, and realistically, you know, I, I need to see like what they look like on black because like number five uh, might be the top vote getter, but if it looks crappy on black, then it's like, eh, I got to make an executive decision on that. But um, number five is is the winner right now with 29% of the vote, which is great. And it is the one that I think I'm probably the most fond of as well. So um, I'm going to see what happens here and stay tuned. Stay tuned. There's more to come on that front. Um, let's kick things off if we could with a uh, a listener message here. What do we got? Hey, Darren, this is Dan in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I have a question for you regarding um, substitutions and alternatives, and this is particular to um, when I have Smith machine work built into a, a workout split. I can't be the only one who goes to a gym where the Smith machine is rarely, if ever, unoccupied. Um, and I got a dilemma sometimes where um, I'm not sure whether I would, whether I should substitute like the next best common sense movement, like say, a uh, an unsupported um, shoulder press, or if I would skip it and come back to it, or wait. I'm curious um, how you handle substitutions and alternatives. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, good uh, good question, Dan. I appreciate that. So uh, it, it's kind of funny. The gym where I go, <clears throat> um, they have two Smith machines, and both are usually unoccupied. I mean, occasionally you see somebody doing a lot of times people do step ups, Bulgarians in them, but you know, nobody goes there to bench or anything like that except me. Um, but it's a, it, it's pretty, uh, pretty common to find both of them unoccupied, which is kind of funny. So every gym is a little bit different in the population and the people that go to those gyms, they're going to dictate what, uh, well, I mean, they're going there because of what the gym has. And also you're, you're going to find certain things tend to get used more and tend to get used less and so there are some things where, again, I have my own coach, so I don't write my own workouts. I do best following instructions from somebody else. So Laney will write up workouts and send them over to me, and I'll do them. And uh, occasionally I will make some substitutions, and I, I've talked with her about this, and she's cool with it. I figured she would be. Um, <clears throat> just because for me, I'm going through a set of workouts four times. Uh, and I'm looking to progress. I want to be using the same equipment each each time. And so, uh, if there's something that is commonly, you know, really difficult to get on, but I happen to luck into it one week, um, I, I'm probably not going to go there just because I want to make sure that I can come back and use it next week as well. So even if you're like, oh, Smith machine, sweet. If it's not usually open, then you know, do something else. Go go with what you feel um, can do it. And so, usually, what I'm looking to do is. You know, th there's there's always a qualifier there, like the descriptive adjective. You know, it might be called Smith machine shoulder press. Well, the important thing there is shoulder press. If it's done on the Smith machine, great. What I like doing there is breaking up, um, so you're not always just doing a dumbbell shoulder press, where you're always responsible for stabilizing independent dumbbells, one attached to each hand. Um, sometimes a barbell press is good. Sometimes a Smith machine press is good where you're not responsible for any stability and all you have to do is get under the weight and press it up. Um, so I like using all of those things. That being said, like there are a lot of gyms out there that don't have a Smith machine. Okay. Well, that doesn't mean you can't follow the program. It just means you got to make a substitution and a judgment call and go, go with a, a different variation on the same movement. So, 
that that applies to a lot of things. Uh, so dumbbell work can be replaced with barbell work, can be replaced with machine work, can often be replaced with Smith machine, Smith machine work. Uh, all of those things are in a, a universal language concept interchangeable. So I, I don't care too much. Now, what I do care about <clears throat> is if somebody says, uh, I only like to use free weights or the opposite. I only like to use machines. Um, I'm like, okay, well, guess what? You're going to benefit a lot from doing something that you don't like. So as a practical matter, if we need to make a substitution, that's great. If it's a matter of preference, no. I'm going to be a hard ass, maybe even a little bit of a dick about it. Um, just because I'm like, I don't, I don't care what your preference is necessarily. Um, and some of the biggest leaps forward in my progress that I've made have been doing things that I don't like and getting better at things that I don't like. You don't like doing it. It's because your skill at that sucks. Well, that skill is directly tied to a certain area or aspect of your development as well. So, um, I will butt heads with people on that, and I've let people go over that before. I'm like, look, if you're not going to follow the workouts, that's fine, um, but don't don't come don't blame me if you're not happy with the results. Um, and that goes not like you know you must do an incline dumbbell press, you must, or you're not going to succeed. No, it's not that. It's that I need to be open minded and be willing to follow instructions and be coachable. So that that matters a lot. So I, I don't you know at the risk of sounding rude. I don't give a shit what your preference is, <laughs> you know, do it. And especially if it's a matter of preference, that's when I really want you to break from that and do something different. There's a lot of value to be found in that. Um, other common substitutions that people have to make, um, ones that I get all the time. Um, I don't have a line leg curl or my gym only has a line leg curl. We don't have a seated leg curl, something like that. And I, I do a lot of workouts. I mean, I, I believe strongly in both of those machines. I think they're great. And I think a gym that doesn't have one of those, frankly, that's a disqualifier. You got a shitty gym if you're missing one of those. I've been members of a lot of shitty gyms, though. So I, I get it. I do get it. Um, my, my theory on that is all of those knee flexion movements are interchangeable. I do, I do write a lot of workouts that, that include both of those, like a seated and a lying leg curl. And so I'll often hear somebody say, We've only got a seated line, the seated leg curl. We don't have a line one, so should I just do the seated one twice? I'm like, no, no, don't don't hit the same machine twice in the same workout. That's silly. But there are other variations available as well. So any knee flexion exercise will do great. So seated leg curl, lion leg curl, standing leg curl using a machine or uh, a cable with an ankle cuff. Um, you can also do a stability ball hamstring curl. That's where you're on your back. You put your heels on a stability ball. You raise your hips up into a bridge position. So from heels to shoulders, you're a straight line. And then you just bend your knees and roll the ball in towards your butt and then push it back out. Nice and slow and steady and really squeeze those hamstrings throughout the whole range of motion. Um, that can be a killer. And then also a, a dumbbell curl where you're face down on a bench and you have a dumbbell between your feet. That one is difficult to pull off um, solo. It takes a little coordination. It is doable, though. So, yeah, what you have to do is get frustrated with it, uh, understand that you're going to look like a little bit of an idiot as you're trying to figure out how to do it, and some people are going to come over and want to help you figure it out. Shoo them away. Like, no, i got to figure this out myself because I don't want to rely on you to help me with this every set. Um, but you can do it. You can figure it out. So <clears throat> that's five um, five variations, two of them don't require any specialized equipment at all. So between those, 
we should be able to hit minimum, you know, three different variations of a knee flexion movement on the same workout if we had to. Um, another one that's really common is a T-bar row. A lot of gyms don't have a T-bar row. Boom, another disqualifier. You don't have a T-bar row, you got a shitty gym. So uh, a lot of people will also say, uh, my, my gym doesn't have a T-bar machine. I'll say it doesn't need one. Do you have a place where you can stick a barbell and something to anchor it down in a corner? A lot of gyms will have a place that is kind of set aside just for that. You can see the walls all beat up there. It might be reinforced a little bit, so you're not just pushing it up against drywall. You don't want, I mean, if if you're just pushing uh, uh, the end of a barbell into a corner of drywall, you're going to fuck that wall up real fast. And you'll probably see a lot of gyms have areas where uh, that has happened. And then there's a sign that says, please do not you know, mash the barbell into the corner here. And there's like clearly wall damage there. Um, so some places will have like a reinforced corner where you can do that. And then you just throw like a, a dumbbell or a plate over one end of the bar. Um, and then, I mean, that's mo- most T-bars that I always used when I was uh, younger were all improvised like that. Uh, it wasn't, it was a long time before I joined a gym that actually had a T-bar machine. Um, so that's an option. Um, also a lot of gyms these days have landmines. Um, that is something that is just either part of a rack attachment or it's bolted to the floor and it's basically just a barbell socket that pivots. <coughs> so you can basically just stick the end of the barbell in there and then it's effectively, effectively anchored down on one end. Uh, and then you can perform a T-bar. Uh, another option for that that is, I don't want to say great, but it's doable. And, uh, oftentimes this is what we have to do is, um, just use a uh, attach a handle to a low cable pulley, and that can kind of simulate uh, the same movement as a T bar a little bit. It's different, yeah, but you get the same general idea at least. You just have to kind of apply a little bit of counterbalance weight to it, um, kind of lean back, put one foot in front of the other a little bit. But it, it's doable. It's doable, and you can still go relatively heavy on that. So it's not perfect, but it is uh, still a decent option. So um, that's good. Very good question. Those are the main substitutions aside from just switching around modality barbell the dumbbell the machine but actually coming up with substitutions for lack of equipment um the, those are the the two categories that really hit me the most uh well that i get the most questions about i guess another one would be a reverse pec deck fly a lot of machines they don't have a pec deck or if they do um, they have one that isn't suitable for using in reverse and in that case um, cables uh, or dumbbells a, a bent over rear delt fly or a cable rear delt fly are both good and again you're just changing the modality there so uh, going from machine, which I think is probably the the best and the most ideal of those three options, to using dumbbells or uh, or cable. But again, you know, get good at all of them. Don't fall into a, a trap where you're only good at one or like I don't like doing these other ones. Well, that's a good sign that that's probably what you need to do. So, um, great question though, Dan. Much appreciated. Let's see what we got next. Hey, Darren. This is Rob from Connecticut again. Uh, I had a question regarding um, a growth phase. So. Um, I've, I've, I've never had a coach, um, and I've just kind of been learning through research and trial and error. Um, and during the winter, I typically have a growth phase and, uh, you know, cut down for the, for the spring and summer. Uh, last year, I had my calories a little too high, I think. I, I gained a lot of body fat, and uh, it was pretty tough this past year to, uh, to cut it all down. So this year, uh, I'm doing a little bit less, but I want to make sure I'm not under feeding myself, um, and, and still getting as much muscle growth as possible. Still, still getting enough nutrition to, to grow as much as possible, um, without, you know, putting on too much body fat. Uh, I understand that, you know, there's, there's going to be a little bit. I guess my question is, 
if I seem to be slowly gaining body fat, does that mean that I am getting enough calories for muscle growth? So thanks very much. Bye. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. So um, we'll talk about that momentarily here just to give everybody some insight as to like what goes on behind the scenes of the drop set here. So uh, I dropped uh, Rob's uh, voice note uh, into the podcast, into the recording app that I use here. Listen to it. I'm like, all right, cool. And I was kind of feeling like, man, my voice is just not ready for this. I'm clearly still recovering here. So uh, let me chew on that for a little bit. I'm going to go eat, go to the gym, come back. So I did that. I ate. I went to the gym, had a, I'm going to go ahead and use the word shitty, uh, chest, shoulders, and triceps workout. Um, Clearly still not. 100% 100% back in the game at all. And uh, came back, did some work, um, just spoke with a client on the phone um, who just kind of wanted to touch base and go over some stuff, which is great. And then went out. So this is your follow-up impact segment on the lawn update from earlier. I went ahead. So the way the backyard is set up, it's in like two two parts basically because it's big enough that a single sprinkler can't hit the whole thing. So I put a sprinkler out in the back. There's grass back there. My wife planted some rhododendron bushes back there, so it kind of gets all that stuff. I let it saturate back there for 20 to 30 minutes, and then I move it to the front half, and then it gets everything else. Um, the front half is where most of the crap is, like the the patchy spots, etc. So I just went out and spent 15 minutes just overseeding the front part of it. So I, I said before yesterday I was too lazy for that. Well, today... I got off my ass and I did it just now. So anyway, there there you go. There's your, your follow-up segment for the day on that. Now, regarding Rob's question here, which is a good one. So to, to recap, so I think this, whether, you, whether you compete or not, sitting kind of an annual phase where you give yourself an opportunity to grow, you give yourself an opportunity to cut down a little bit is a good thing. And I think a good ratio for a non-competitor is probably like nine months growth, three months cutting. Um, so I would say, first of all, as a general rule of thumb, if you can keep yourself at a reasonable body composition level long term following a, uh, a ratio similar to that, that's probably a good sign that you're not getting too fat. Um, and I think taking photos and tracking measurements and just keeping a journal of those things long term is really useful. So uh, I think if you can maintain that, you're probably in a, a good mix there. So then the question becomes, OK, well, what if I bulk more aggressively for like eight months and then maybe cut more aggressively for four months? Well, that's fine, too. And I think that that would probably allow you to get. Um, you know, uh, slightly greater results, maybe. Um, it just there's a lot of there's a lot of things to consider there. So it's hard to say for sure or speaking very generally. Uh, so you said maybe calories were a little too high last year, tough time cutting back down. But I would say, you know, I'm going to go ahead and make the assumption you still did it. You just had to work a little bit harder, which doesn't necessarily mean that that was a problem. Um, you might say, well, I had to work a little bit harder than I wanted. I'm like, okay, that, that's fair. That, that's fair. You know, I have a certain threshold where I'm comfortable putting on this much weight and then I have to take off much more than that. You know, it's just not fun. It's not something I really enjoy doing. I totally get that. So you're doing less this year and you're concerned about maybe underfeeding. So if you're slowly gaining body fat, does that mean that calories are high enough for growth? And I would say, yeah, it means they're higher than they need to be. Um, but, and here, here is one thing that I've talked about before. Um, you can have your calories at 
maintenance pretty much. And if you if you heavily concentrate your uh, intake around your peri-workout window, pre-workout, intra-workout, post-workout, um, you can grow. You're giving your body fuel and recovery there. Now, recovery is important the rest of the day as well. So if you keep your calories low the rest of the day, you're impacting your recovery a little bit, but you're giving your body what it needs at the most critical time. So you can still grow doing that. Now, it's going to be slower than if you had your calories higher in, uh, in the rest of the day and just higher overall so that you can have more growth, more recovery overall as well. So um, the, the issue with that is the more conservative that you are with it, like if you keep your calories just at the level to, to initiate growth and not put on any body fat at all, your growth is going to be slow enough that it is likely going to be imperceptible unless you are infinitely patient. So therefore, a, a reasonable compromise is to bring up the calories a little bit more your capacity for growth is higher, then you're going to put on a little bit of body fat as well. But at that point, you know, the the changes are more evident, not all of them necessarily positive. Like you can see like, okay, you know, I'm putting on a little bit of thickness here, but oh man, my shoulders, you know, I I, I can see, I can see the, the changes in development in my shoulders as well. So a lot of that just has to do with your patience level. And I work with people on all stripes. Um, there's one guy I'm thinking of in particular, um, also named Rob, not from Connecticut, um, who, you know, we keep his calories right around maintenance and his weight creeps up like a tenth or two tenths um, over the course of like two weeks. Really, really slow. He's cool with that. He is a freaking robot. I can just program him and set him off into the world and he follows his programming. It's like the, I think, uh, when we checked in like two weeks ago, um, there was something that showed up on his tracker that he sent me and there was some kind of a work related thing he had where he had to improvise two meals and going back like six months, that was the only deviation on his diet the whole time. Like, Dude is a robot. So yeah, I mean, he is a guy who I would say is infinitely patient and you know, we've done a, a dirty bulk with him before, not dirty, but a little less uh, conservative of a bulk um, where he put on a little bit more fat and it made his, his prep. He's a competitor, made his next prep a little tougher. Um, we got it done. Uh, and he's like, Hey, can we try it and just keep it a little bit, uh, a little bit tighter this time around? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're doing it and he's handling it really well. Um, if it were me, I would not handle that. Well, I would get really, I'm a very patient guy, but when it comes to seeing changes in my body, I'm not that patient. Um, so I'm more comfortable, uh, putting on a little bit of body fat because it's, it's going to give me a chance to grow a little bit more in the process as well. So there's no right or wrong answer to that, but it's totally personal preference. But, um, if you are slowly gaining some body fat, you are gaining some muscle there as well, assuming, big assumption here, that your workout intensity is on point. And if it's not, all bets are off. How do you know if it's on point? Hmm. That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? <coughs> um, you know, I could follow you around and let you know, give you a personal opinion, like, yeah, you're doing good. Um, and that, that's what I try to do for my clients. I have them send me some videos and I can give them pointers on like, yeah, your intensity here looks great. Or yeah, I can tell you're working, but this ain't gonna cut it. Like we got to We got to step it up a little bit. So try X, Y, and Z to help you get there. Um, and that's one of the big things that I do is just a, a gut check on somebody's intensity to make sure it's happening and, and, and they're doing what we need to do. So, uh, so the question is, well, how do I know if my intensity is there? And my, my answer is always the same. Assume it's not and work harder. There you go. You know, eke out those extra reps. If you, uh, you have to be honest with yourself. If you're targeting 10 reps for something and you hit rep 10 and you're like, you, you put the weights down, you're like, eh, I could have got 11. I probably could have even got 12. You're not working hard enough. 
<coughs> I would rather have you fail at nine and not even hit ten, um, but legitimately fail. Like not just crap out on the set early, but legitimately fail. You'll know. Um, if, if you just give up on a set just because it gets hard, and trust me, this is not a judgment. I do it all the time. I do it way more often than I should where you just crap out on a set, and I've said it before. That's why I'm 240 pounds right now and not 270. That's the difference. Uh, so if you legitimately fail instead of just crapping out, that's a great sign, and that tells me that you're you're on point. You understand what failure is, and you reach it regularly. So um, that's really good. So uh, as a great question, Rob. I appreciate that. Let's do one more, and then we'll switch gears a little bit. Hey, Darren. It is Jenny calling from Minnesota. I apologize if this question has been asked. I am still trying to catch up on all your podcasts. Um, my question is in regards to pre-workout or intra-workout drinks. Um, whether the BCAAs or creatine, what is the difference? Um, why are we using them? I've heard conflicting responses or reading um, different things about them. Some say you don't even need them. It's a waste of money. Um, other articles say you should have it. You should have the BCAA workout, uh, pre-workout drinks. So just wondering what your thoughts are, um, what you would need, and why you would choose one or, or over the other. Um, thank you. Bye. Awesome. Thank you, Jenny. Appreciate that. So, uh, it, it's a good question. Um, it is a really good question. And some supplements are one thing where I feel very confident in saying like, you're going to get an extremely straight answer here on this podcast versus what you might hear on others. Just think about who the sponsors of some podcasts are. If you do reading on the web, look at the source for where things are coming from. Um, anything regarding supplements from like bodybuilding.com, for example, their primary business model is selling supplements. What do you think? They're going to tell you you don't need X, Y, or Z? Give me a break. I don't think I've ever read an article in all of the million things that I've read on bodybuilding.com that ever says, we don't really need this supplement. <laughs> no, that's, that's uh, antithetic to their business model. So I'm going to give it to you straight. Um, BCAAs, there is legitimate questions as far as their utility. Um, I have used them habitually for so long, and this is what the supplement companies are banking on, that in light of recent research, even in light of recent research that casts doubt onto their utility, I still use them because it's habit. Um, and I still recommend them just because it, it, it's habit. And also, first of all, there's nothing negative that comes from using them. Um, you know, is, <coughs> excuse me, are, are BCAAs necessary for protein synthesis? Well, yes, but is a BCAA product necessary for protein synthesis? Well, it depends. You know, if you don't have a pre-workout or a post-workout meal, you've got to have something in there. Um, and then there's, there's conflicting reports because you'll find studies that, uh, that come up with different outcomes or different, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Different, uh, conclusions conclusions on the amount of protein that you need for, you know, an ideal level of protein synthesis. And then you have to also take into account, you know, who is this population studying? Are they stu studying bodybuilders? Are they studying lifters, which is a lot more general? Um, and, and I think uh, at this point, the research is inconclusive. And so I think having additional branch chain amino acids in your system to support a higher degree of protein synthesis than you would get without it is certainly not a problem. Um, and also, for me, it's a taste thing. Like, I really struggle with just plain water. 
I really do. You throw some BCAAs in there, and suddenly it's like, oh, okay, cool. So, I mean, you know, I spend 30 bucks a month for a BCAA product to use that. Is that worth it? Yeah, it's worth it for me. Um, and I am, I am not so convinced as to their obsolescence that, uh, that I don't recommend them. Um, I do tell people like if they ask me, um, like I'll say, here's the program, here you go. Uh, and they're like, what, what, what's, what are these supplements for? And then I'll give them this answer. I'm like, well, you know, BCAAs are for, uh, you know, some, somewhat for endurance, like muscular endurance, but also for protein synthesis during your workout. So it helps with building muscle on a, in a very broad sense. Um, there are conflicting reports about how useful they are. I feel strongly enough recommending them, so that, therefore they're in the program. But you know, consider them optional. If for whatever reason you don't want to use them, like you want to save money or you don't like the artificial sweeteners or whatever, I totally get it. Are you going to miss out on, on a whole lot from that? Eh, probably not. You know, you'll probably be okay, but I like the insurance policy. Um, glutamine is for two primary things. It's for overall gut health and also for recovery. Um, it can be had inexpensively enough that uh, even if there were some uh, skepticism about how useful it is, which I have not really read any of that, um, it would still be worth using. Uh, you know, again, it's one of those things. Uh, glutamine also is an amino acid. It is... Uh, uh, there, there's no harm in taking it. And I, I do find that there's there's good utility in that. Um, creatine, specifically, um, is one of the few supplements that has been universally proven in clinical studies to be effective at what it claims to do, which is uh, stimulate muscle growth. So, well, it doesn't doesn't stimulate muscle growth, but uh, what, what it does, the primary mechanism that creatine monohydrate works in, and that's what I recommend, you know, take your you know, creatine hydrochloride, crealkaline or whatever, take that and shove it. I don't care. Um, just because <clears throat> it all gives a similar effect and creatine monohydrate comes at a fraction of the cost of the others. Um, I'm aware of the, the benefits uh, of the others over uh, monohydrate, meaning like monohydrate, the way it works is through cellular water retention. So, you know, you'll, you'll start taking creatine. You can expect to gain a couple pounds just because of fluid retention. That's how it works. That's the mechanism through which it works. Um, the other products do not do that. For me, I don't care. I gained a pound or two taking creatine, pff, big fat deal. I don't care about that. Um, you know, g give me the, the cheaper product because you can buy basically a lifetime supply of creatine monohydrate for 20 bucks. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I always joke that you can buy it by the 55 gallon drum pretty much. Uh, it should be extremely inexpensive for both creatine and glutamine. My recommendations are, you know, they are chemical compounds. Get the cheapest one you can. Um, no exceptions. For BCAAs, you know, you know what the ingredients are. The ratios can be a little bit different. The flavor and the mixability can be a little bit different. Um, and then some of them also will be uh, fortified with something like glutamine. If you look at Cybation Extend, that's a BCAA and glutamine product combo. Do you want both of those together or do you want them separate so that you can dose them separately? You might not be happy with how much glutamine there is in a, a serving of Extend. You might want more. You might want less. I don't know. So, um, but those are things to consider. Uh, but that's what they're for. That's what they're for specifically. And when it comes to intra-workout products, those are my mainstays. I will also throw in a carb, like a high molecular weight carb. Right now I'm using highly branched cyclic dextrin from True Nutrition. <coughs> I have in the past. I know everybody's like totally, totally wishing this podcast would go on for two hours. Like, God, I love listening to Darren cough every four minutes. That's really the highlight of my day. I apologize. I truly do. Uh 
so during a growth phase, like I'm in right now, uh, an intro workout carb helps tremendously. Um, so you bring in some extra carbs to help replenish glycogen stores while you're trying actively to deplete them. That's a good thing for sure. Um, what else do I use? Um, a pre-workout. I love a good pre-workout. Um, I've always used one, again, habitually more than anything else. I, I do notice a, 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 you know, less of a pump without one also. And uh, then the other, the other thing that I throw in is, uh, <coughs> oh, excuse me, my goodness, liquid L-carnitine, um, which uh, I, I started using that before because uh, I read something about its utility for preservation of skeletal muscle during fasted cardio. Um, but you know, preservation could also be used, uh, if you want to turn that around, it can, it can stimulate, um, growth as well, rather than just preserving. So, um, I will throw that, I actually mix it in with my pre-workout just because of flavor compatibility more than anything else. So, um, I use a liquid L-carnitine product from Dimatize actually. Okay. Great stuff there. So, um, let's go. I've got a few questions here that I want to take. These are ones that came in through email or messages, etc. Um, Steve, um, by the way, Steve. Shout out to you. Um, I appreciate it. Steve emails emails me regularly with some thoughts, some questions, bounces some stuff off me, and I always like these. He's got some good stuff to talk about. Definitely a, a thinker when it comes to bodybuilding. I appreciate that. So um, he wrote, and again, as I always do, this is the fun game. I will try to read uh, Steve's entire email here without interruption and without throwing in my own additional comments here. So I'm going to try this, and we'll see how it goes. <clears throat> Quote, how do you feel about pre-exhaust training, such as performing a few sets of glute ham raises before compound movements such as deadlifts to really target the hamstring muscle? Apparently doing so helps to prioritize the prime mover. Taking some of the gas out of the tank on the hamstring before hitting the big lift will allow you to ensure that this muscle fatigues at the same rate as the synergistic muscles that are included in the compound lift. I've recently discovered this method of training. Online journal studies say it has no greater benefit than just starting with the compound movement. Wanted to hear your input. Going to try it on my hamstring workout tonight. Thanks. Awesome. So, very good. I'm a big fan of pre-exhaust training. Um, <clears throat> almost uh, exclusively because an online journal said it had no greater benefit, which immediately throws me in the camp of saying, yes, then there's probably something to it. Um, yeah, this is where bodybuilding studies, especially uh, concerning lifting, I think really fall flat because there's just too many variables for me to really put stock in research studies on lifting. Who are they, who, who, who are they using? You know, so they're, they're tracking some, let, let's use Steve's example. You know, this is not from the, the study. This is just what he was talking about, but you know, uh, doing some glute ham raises before deadlifts. Well, who is doing this? How good of a deadlifter are they? You know, do they have the requisite hamstring st strength to do glute ham raises or do, are they doing them assisted? If so, is it manual assistance? Is it machine assistance? You know, what is it? And you know, the, the individual skill level matters a lot. And I understand in a study, there are multiple people doing this. It's not just one person, but <clears throat> um, how long have has this population been lifting? Are these experienced lifters? Are they new lifters? These are things that you might be able to glean from the study. You know, you can get some you know, vague description of the demographic of people that are involved here, but that's not good enough for me. Uh, I, I need to know more <clears throat> if I'm going to take a study and put much stock in it. What I have uh, instead is years of my own experience um, doing training like this, not doing training like this, and then I can draw some conclusions here. And also, uh, in you know, this is not scientific, but I don't, I don't, 
<laughs> I don't pretend it to be scientific at all, uh, in uh, having clients do the same thing, getting their feedback on what works and what doesn't. Um, generally speaking, I think if you go in, you do your warm up, and you proceed into a main compound lift, uh, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If you do a lift, uh, a, a, let's say an isolation movement, let's just keep it simple and assume that's what we're talking about. Uh, if you do an isolation movement first, um, that is necessarily, if you do it correctly, because we're not talking like, oh, I'm going to do a few warm-up sets of a leg curl before going into a squat or something like that. Like, no, we're going to go do some curls and we're going to hammer the shit out of your hamstrings and then we're going to do some squats. So that is necessarily going to reduce your performance on squat. I don't care. I don't care about your performance on squat. What I care about is your week two performance on squat versus week one in the same context, having hammered your hamstrings hard before them in both weeks. That's what, that's what I care about. I don't care if your one rep max goes down on your squat because you did something else first. I mean, seriously, who gives a shit about that? Not me. If you're a power lifter, yeah, differently. But you know, I'm, I'm all the power lifters out there. I'm not talking to you. I have a powerlifting story, by the way. I'll say it for you here. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a huge, huge fan of pre-exhausting. And also, let, let's just take take uh, let, let's change the the framework of the question just a little bit as well. Um, you don't need a big compound lift in a workout. You don't need a leg day that features deadlifts or barbell squats. You know, in which case, you know, what, what are you pre-exhausting for? You don't need to pre-exhaust for anything necessarily. Um, you know, maybe your, your primary mover is a leg press on a given day. That's your primary compound movement. I know heresy, right? Oh my God. How can you not squat on leg day? Give me a break. You know, <laughs> I, I haven't done barbell squats in probably six months at this point. You know why? Cause when I do, they hurt and not in a good way. So, uh, th there's no one exercise that we can't do without, you know, you can, you can skip anything until you start skipping everything. So uh, if you are going to do a, uh, a big movement like that, and certainly there's nothing wrong with that, of course, like, let's say, you know, we're talking about squats here or deadlifts, whatever it is. So let's say you're, you're quad dominant. Well, I think it makes a lot of sense to, pre-exhaust your hamstrings so that first of all, you're more aware of them when you go to squat. Um, then there, there could be some, uh, a school of thought and you could make this argument and I would probably debate it with you a little bit and we could have a friendly conversation about it there. You could make the argument like, okay, well, if you pre-exhaust your, uh, your hamstrings, aren't you disadvantaging them on the squat when you go into it? Um, they're, they're fatigued. So isn't that going to make everything else, you know, your glutes, your quads want to take over a little bit more. And I would argue, no, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're hitting them and you're hitting them hard. Um, you know, we're not just trying to warm them up. Like I said, we're trying to work them thoroughly, but they're not dead after that. They're still absolutely able to work. And I would say having some blood flow back there, especially on an isolation movement where you're doing a leg curl, um, you're getting all the blood flow back there. Your quads are still cold pretty much. I mean, you warmed them up, but they haven't, you know, you haven't gotten any blood flow in there. <clears throat> so I think there's, uh, I think you've actually advantaged your hamstrings to be able to recruit more. You know, there's more blood back there. They're pumped up a little bit. You're going to be more aware of them when you go down and you, you get your hips flexed and you get your knees flexed. You're going to feel the hamstrings more and you're going to be more cued in to recruit them harder. And this is one thing where the studies start to fall apart here because, you know, I plant that seed in your head. I want you to focus on them. I want you to hit them harder. Now, the researcher, are they telling, you know, are, are they telling their subjects that? No. And I mean, you know, that's not what they're trying to study, but it's what we're trying to make happen. So 
that is where the the clinical and the practical side of things divorce a little bit. So, so, um, but yeah, I'm a big believer in pre-exhaust work. Absolutely. So Steve, great question. I, I know I've still got like one or two more from you and I'll get to those. Uh, I've, I've got to wrap this up cause I've got a couple other things I want to go over really quickly and I got to do this before my voice gives out. So, um, okay. So I, I said I had a powerlifting story. So I did go to the gym yesterday. I had leg day. And one of the things on the agenda was reverse hyperextensions um, because the gym has a reverse hyper table. Great. Well, the way the gym is set up, there's like free weights and upper body machines on one side. And then the other side of the gym is all the leg stuff. Um, and then over past the leg stuff, then you've got like the powerlifting area. And there's actually an octagon octagon in there as well never seen anybody in there except one person that was doing yoga one time except yesterday there was a man and a woman who were in there and they strapped up and took their shoes off and were were beaten against a pad i'm like okay cool never seen that before um so over by the leg the all the, all the leg stuff is the power lifting area so this is where they've got the hydraulic squat rack they've got the deadlift platform in there as well and it's basically where you know it is where i might catch some some shit from people but uh, I don't care. You know what? This is my podcast. I'm going to speak my truth. This is where all the dumbasses go. Oh my God. I don't know if it's universal or if it's just my gym, but power lifters are just the biggest jackasses ever. Like every single one of them, I can't stand. And it, I, I don't know any of them, but just looking at them, I'm like, I have a visceral response to these people. And part of it is the guy, oh, Taz senses that I'm getting upset, so he comes slinking downstairs to see what's wrong with me. Come here, buddy. I'm not mad at you. It's okay. It's Come here. The closer he gets to me, the slower he gets. He's like <laughs> he's like a logarithmic function or something like that. It's okay, buddy. It's okay. Um, the, there's the guy who, who takes his shirt off and, like, rubs something like oil or lotion all over his hairy back and shoulders uh, and it's like, ugh, like I want to throw up in my mouth just watching that. So there's that guy. There's the people walking around barefoot over there. Um, but what what really gets me are the people who you know, you know the, the people who think that the the quality of your deadlift is completely dependent on how loud you can slam the bar down into the ground between reps. Um, that is annoying. Or the people who will celebrate a lift for a minute at the top of their lungs after they hit it. I'm like, yeah, nobody cares. Shut the fuck up, please. Good Lord. Ugh. I, I, I realize that this is probably irrational, but I can't be alone in thinking this. I'm like, just do your work and shut up and GTFO. Come on. Um, but the problem is the reverse hyper table is the counter for the power lifters. So I walked over to go and use it yesterday, and what was on it? There were three phones, four water bottles, two sweatshirts, two lifting belts, four pairs of shoes under it, and three gym bags around it. This is all for three people. Why were there four pairs of shoes for three people? I have no fucking clue. I have no idea. Um, and so I just walked over there, and I... <laughs> Uh, I had to get their attention because none of them were looking at me like, excuse me. I just gestured to it. I'm like, a little help? <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah. Well, nobody was in here earlier. I'm like, well, there's people in here now. And uh, they're like, yeah, nobody ever, nobody ever uses this thing. I'm like, there might be a reason for that. Maybe it's because jackasses like you always put their shit on it, and it's just really uninviting. 
Um, but I got to come over here and use it. I didn't say that. I was much more diplomatic. I really just wanted to be a dick. I really did. But I was nice. Uh, my, my parents would be proud. I behaved myself very well. It's just so obnoxious. Okay, that's my powerlifting rant for the day. The only thing that I want to close up with here now, well, the mark, mark the tape here. We're 47 minutes and 12 seconds. Cool. So it's time for a little TV update because I haven't done one of these in a while. And I've been watching a lot of stuff, the wife and I have. And it's just time to catch you all up on it here. So um, a couple things in particular. What have we seen? Um, first of all, I'd mentioned before Peaky Blinders. Um, I will mention it again. Season 5 was just released on Netflix. We went through that in two days, which is an unheard of speed for us to go through something. Um, <clears throat> it was pretty remarkable, actually. Uh, season 5 was probably, I would say, a little weaker uh, on average, but still... Uh, if you're if you're in the mood for a good show um, that has some gratuitous violence, little sex, some drama, some really really awesome character development, and some absolutely kick-ass performances, and just looks beautiful, um, that is a show for you. Uh, very very much so. I cannot recommend it strongly enough. I really can't. Absolutely exceptional. Really good. Um, we also watched in record time. All of Ken Burns' country music documentary that was on PBS. Um, we watch everything through our uh, Amazon Fire Stick. There's a PBS app available for that. It takes some uh, some jumping through hoops to get it set up. You've got to coordinate it with your phone so it knows where you are, so it knows what your local PBS affiliate is. But you get all, that all set up, and you can watch it. There's eight episodes. Each episode is two hours. One of them is a little bit longer than that. So you're looking at about 17 hours worth of a documentary on country music. And... What I knew about country music going into this can be summed up um, with, uh, I mean, I, I had a karaoke country music experience. That was it. In my 20s, uh, I, I was dating someone that loved to go and sing karaoke, and the only country music that I knew were songs uh, that people would sing as karaoke songs. So basically, like, uh, I've got friends in low places, um, Fancy by Reba, and uh, Johnny Cash. I guess that that was about it. That that was that was my country music knowledge. And I'm a musician, but you know, country just like yeah, it wasn't my thing. Well, you know what? It's my thing now. Having watched that, that documentary was probably <laughs> 17 of the best uh, television viewing hours that I've ever watched. Um, once again, you're, you, if you're looking for a recommendation that cannot possibly come strongly or loudly enough, that is it. Um, you got to do it. I don't care if country music is your thing or not. It wasn't mine. But man, I am inspired watching that. I have a newfound respect for so many of those musicians. Even ones that I, I thought were just like relegated to punchlines or like, that's somebody with a really silly sounding name, you know, Merle Haggard. Give me a break. Who the hell is that? You know, I mean, <laughs> and now I know who Merle Haggard is. And do I have all the respect in the world for Merle Haggard? Absolutely, I do. May he rest in peace. And that's kind of the sad thing is, you know, he was interviewed in this documentary and he's since passed. So, um, but just so, so many uh big names uh were interviewed and took part in this and they told so many stories uh going all the way back to the early days um in the 1920s with the Carter family uh and it was just the the photos and the video footage that they have even from back then is just spectacular and the the way that they are able to weave this whole 
tapestry together and create a narrative story out of the whole thing when there's just elements over here, you know, like the Bakersfield, California country scene versus the Nashville scene, um, you know, totally different things happening at similar times and the way that they take you back and forth. You never really feel lost. You never feel like things are getting overly complex or there's too much stuff going on. They really just distill it down so well um, and really make you care about these people. Um, and tell you their story and they play so much of the music and they really give you the importance in the history of the songs and you can really see like how groundbreaking somebody like Loretta Lynn was in her day. Did I know anything about Loretta Lynn? No. What I knew about her, uh, I could have written on a grain of rice. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd heard the name. I couldn't, I couldn't name a single one of her songs. Uh, so... Uh, but I mean, just how how revolutionary somebody like she was. I mean, it's just remarkable. So uh, I, again, a recommendation of the highest order. Whether you are a country music fan or not, you owe it to yourself to sit down and watch episode one of that and see if you get hooked. For me, the older stuff uh, had me hook, line, and sinker, and I was thinking like, well, as they get into the more modern stuff, I'm going to care a lot less about that. I did not. I did not. I was I was equally riveted and drawn in throughout every episode because it goes chronologically starting with the old stuff and finishing with you know the the garth brooks era of country music so um i mean just absolutely fascinating totally fascinating so yeah a strong strong recommendation um other than that we've been watching a few movies i've been on a chris nolan kick i felt like i had to rewatch both uh, interstellar and inception two of my favorite movies so i did that the last couple nights um we watched uh, spider-man far from home back on thursday oh el camino the breaking bad movie we saw that on friday actually so um that was great i really enjoyed that if you're a fan of breaking bad of course you've got to see this you already know you've got to see this um it's uh, it is very true to the show. Um, it's it's a two-hour movie that's a very slow burn, um, but it's very satisfying. I felt very true to the character, exceptionally well done. Um, just really, really good, really good. It does require a little patience. Um, like I said, it's a slow burn, um, but it's all about those little character beats um, here and there. So uh, once again, a high recommendation on that. So okay. Having said all that, I am proud to say that I have survived this first episode back. I will return on Friday. That is my solemn promise to all of you. I'll be back. We're back to two days a week. I got so much more stuff to cover. By all means, though, I'm going to run through it pretty quick. So keep the phone uh, calls calling in. Eight, coming in, 865-518-2974. Stay tuned for additional news on the logo as well. And other than that, I'll catch up with you all again on Friday.